Please pray with me. Father, now we ask that you would bless us in spite of the fact that we have been guilty of so much wrong and fallen into sin and have easily gotten influenced rather than informed. God, we pray that you will now enrich our minds, sanctifying them to recognize your voice. Lord, you are the good shepherd and you promise that your sheep hear your voice. And Father, in the midst where so many voices are clamoring, demanding for our audience, we pray that the only voice that we hear is your very word. And so God, would you speak to us today in this preached word, that it would truly be your voice and that it would cause your sheep to recognize it and to follow it unquestioningly, faithfully, in devotion so that we could be equipped to be a blessing to the world. For Lord, you know this world is in crisis. This world desperately needs your people to truly be informed by the word so that we can go out with the power that it can provide and bring hope to this broken world. Father, we pray that you'll bless us now and that you'll bless this message in spite of the one who brings it. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen and amen. So to set the stage for today's sermon, I want to begin with a question that, in my estimation, is perhaps one of the most important questions that could ever be posed to you. And it's this question. Do you have a toe? Again, I ask, do you have a toe? Now, I imagine you hear that question, your response is probably something like, uh, yeah, PJ, of course I have a toe. Guess what? So do you. So does every person who walks on this earth. Duh. To which I would say, you're right. Every person has a toe. But if the toe that you're thinking of is one of the ten that are attached to the end of your foot, then you're absolutely wrong. Because the toe I'm thinking of is not that. I'm thinking of some other toe. What is that? The theory of everything. T-O-E, toe. It was a term that was first coined by the late Albert Einstein to what he imagined to be a comprehensive theory or some massive universal law that could explain everything about everything in reality, in this material world of existence. Now, of course, that term toe has changed over the years, evidenced by the fact that it now uses another word to describe it. And given the current turmoil that we're in right now with this whole issue of racism, I'm sure you've heard this word. And what word is that? It's the word narrative. Oh, the left-wing media won't show this story on their newsfeed because it doesn't fit their narrative. Oh man, this narrative right here, it explains so much of why those crazy radical fundamentalists are the way they are. Toe, narrative, narrative, toe. It's the concept of an overarching story that explains everything and exposes everyone for who they really are. It's the metaphorical glasses that people put on in order to see how and why the world and everything in it behaves the way that it does. But as many of us are well aware by now, there doesn't seem to be a consensus on what the right narrative is or what is sometimes known as the big toe. Depending on who you ask, the narratives fall into different kinds of categories. For some people, their narratives fall into the left-wing liberal ideological narrative. For other people, their narrative falls into the middle-of-the-road progressive ideological narratives. And then for other people, it fits into the right-wing fundamentalist conservative ideological narratives. And as a result, there leads to such contentions because there are conflicting narratives or what is sometimes known as the culture wars. And what's so sad about all this? is that when a tragedy happens, such as the murder of George Floyd, instead of being able to properly address the problems that led to this tragedy, 
People can't even agree what the problem is because they have different interpretations and assessment of what the problem is because they have differing narratives. And the question that we have to ask is, is there a narrative out there that can really function as the big toe because it is the big toe? Is there an overarching story that can really identify the problems and therefore the solutions that life gives us that can clear up the confusion that is surrounding us so often and even overcome the difficulties that sometimes society has to face together? Well, the Apostle Peter says, yes, there is. And we're going to take a look at what that is as we take a look at our passage in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. It is my hope that as you consider what Peter says here, you, the church, will be equipped so that you can decipher out, out of all these narratives that are out there what is good, what is biblical, and then toss out what is bad because it's unbiblical. So with that in mind, three things I'd like to share with you today. First, we're going to talk about the ultimate narrative we are living in. Then we're going to talk about the ultimate plot of this narrative. We must recognize and then end it with the ultimate decision this narrative calls us to make. The ultimate narrative we are living in, the ultimate plot of this narrative we must recognize, and the ultimate decision this narrative calls us to make. First, let's begin with the ultimate narrative we are living in. Now we all know that a narrative is a story, and a story is a narrative. And in order for a story to be a story, it needs certain elements to be properly labeled as a story. For example, you need character, you need a setting, you need plot, right? You also need, uh, what else do you need? Uh, you need conflict, you need resolution, okay? Character, setting, plot, conflict, resolution. These are considered the five elements of a story. And indeed, if you take a look at our passage carefully, you come to find, you see those five elements in our verses. First, there are characters like God in verse 6, and then there's Satan in verse 8. And then there's the rest of humanity embedded throughout the whole passage. Then you have setting which is the world, verse 9. Then you have a plot, which is the entire passage. Then you have conflict, which again is referring to resisting our adver adversary, verse 9, the devil. And then you have resolution, verse 11, where Jesus is described as having dominion forever and ever. kind of sounds like the happily ever after resolutions that we're familiar with from our childhood stories. So interestingly, you come to find that when Peter is describing the nature of existence, he says it's framed in the context, in the structure of a story. In other words, the way human existence is structured is structured in the way of a narrative, in the way of a story. Now you hear that and you're like, what? How is that possible? That doesn't make sense. That doesn't seem consistent to my experience. And hey, I get it. I get it, because for most of us, from our experiences, the only time we're ever exposed to narratives or stories is when we're little kids, right? We watch as youngsters little movies like The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, The Lion King, or we read books like The Three Little Pigs, The Hardy Boys, you know, Babysitter's Club. But of course, as we get older, these stories become few and far between in our lives, and in replacement of those are textbooks filled with scientific data and mathematical equations that equip us for seeing life the way we do now, which is what? A competition, a rat race, maybe even a machine, you see? And as a result, many of us have a hard time hearing this idea that existence, that reality is structured as a grand narrative. But consider this quote from political philosopher Alistair McIntyre and listen to what he says. It's very insightful. He says this quote, I can only answer the question, what am I to do if I can answer the prior question of what story of stories do I find myself a part? 
We enter human society, that is, with one or more imputed characters, roles into which we have been drafted, and we have to learn what they are in order to be able to understand how others respond to us and how our responses to them are apt to be construed. It is through hearing stories about wicked stepmothers, lost children, good misguided kings, wolves that suckle twin boys that children learn or mislearn both what a child is and what a parent is, what the cast of characters may be in the drama into which they have been born, and what the ways of the world are. Deprive children of stories, and you leave them unscripted, anxious stutterers in their actions, in their words. Hence, there is no way to give us an understanding of any society, including our own, except through the stock of stories which constitutes its initial dramatic resources, end quote. What's he saying? He's saying, in order to really make sense of what we are to do in this world, what is right, we have to know the stories in which we are born into. Because it's when we understand stories that we understand ourselves, the world, and everything in between. So that we can know what the right thing to do is. And here in our passage, Peter tacitly agrees by wanting to make sure that you and I, Christian, know what the narrative is so that we can live it out. And he begins by introducing to us some characters. Now, depending on who you ask, they'll tell you that in order for a story to be a story, you need a certain number of minimum characters, right? Some people say four, some people say nine, some people say 12, and there's quite a varying opinion on this. But if you compared all these various opinions, you come to find there are three core characters that you see in all of these ideas, okay? There is the protagonist, which is the main character. There is the antagonist, the villain. And then you have the supporting actors or the supporting characters, which is where all the variant number comes. These are the three core characters that you must have in order to have a story. And sure enough, they correspond to the three that Peter identifies in our passage. Okay, Take a look at the first character that Peter draws our attention to, and that's the character of Jesus. Look at how he describes Jesus in verse 11. He says what about him? He's going to have dominion forever and ever. This description clearly tells us that in Peter's mind, Jesus is the protagonist. He is the main character. He's the main character of the story of reality, the story of existence. And indeed, all throughout scripture, you see this same idea being conveyed to where the message of the Bible is clearly this. Jesus is not just the main character of the whole Bible. Jesus is the main character of everything. He is the center of it all. Consider what the Apostle Paul says about our Jesus in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 15, we read, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and things we can't see, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Jesus really is the center of it all. He is the center of everything, okay? Which means when it comes to the story of your life, the main character of your story is not you, it's Jesus. Let me say that again. When it comes to the story of your life, you are not the main star. It's Jesus who is the morning star. He is the one who is the center of it all. Now, let's move on to the other character that Peter identifies for us, and that's the devil. All right? And interestingly, he describes the devil in a way that no other passage of scripture does. How does he describe him? He calls him like a roaring lion. Interesting. Interesting. Why does Peter use this description of the devil, of Satan? 
Well, believe it or not, Peter is trying to help us understand how Satan sees himself. And you might be wondering, well, what exactly is that? How does Satan see himself? Well, consider what it says here in Proverbs 20, verse 2. Excuse me. It says this. The king's fury is like a lion's roar. To arouse his anger is to risk your life. The king's fury is like a lion's roar. To arouse his anger is to risk your life. Apparently, Satan sees himself as an angry king. And why is Satan so angry? Well, why would a king ever get angry? Because his kingship, his sense of dominion, is being challenged. It's being undermined. Maybe it's not being recognized at all. Right? That's how kings always got angry. That would unleash their fury. And so clearly from Satan's perspective, the person who should have dominion forever and ever isn't Jesus. It should be him. The person who should be the main character of the story of existence should not be the king of kings. It should be him. He should be the protagonist. He should be the main character. He should be the center of it all. And now we come to find what the ultimate narrative that we're living in is all about. You know what it's about? It's about the ultimate conflict between Satan and Jesus. This is the narrative, folks, that you and I are living in. This is what our lives are telling us, what it's echoing. It's telling us about the ultimate narrative of the ultimate conflict between Satan and Jesus, which means Satan wants nothing more, and the only thing he cares about is to destroy Jesus. That's the only goal he has in mind. That's the only agenda that he has. He is so fixated on destroying Jesus to the point He'll even destroy anyone who reminds him of Jesus, like little children. Anyone who represents Jesus, like all Christians. He will even go so far as to destroy anyone who has residual resemblances of Jesus, which is every human being, non-Christians especially. See? This is the only thing he cares about. And this is the ultimate narrative that is embedded in our own individual personal narratives. Or if I could put it this way, Every individual life story that has ever been played out is either a foreshadowing, a flashback, a manifestation, a reenactment of this grand ultimate narrative of the conflict between Satan and Jesus. This is the narrative that we are living out. So, up to this point, we talked about the two main characters, the protagonist, the antagonist. We talked about conflict. But now that leaves us with the plot and the resolution. So let's talk about those things by going to my next point, the ultimate plot of this narrative that we must recognize. Read again our passage starting in verse 6, where it says this, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being persecuted by your brotherhood throughout the world. Okay, pause right there. Your attention, please. Here, Peter is addressing Christians that they need to be humble in verse 6. But the way he tells them to be humble is what he says in verse 8. What does he say? Be sober-minded. Be sober-minded. Hmm. Now, when you come to understand what he means by that phrase, you then figure out what the ultimate plot of this narrative is all about. So let's dig in a little bit <clears throat> by centering in for just a moment this concept of being sober-minded. In the original Greek, <clears throat> it's simply for the word sober. Right? Sober-minded is a translation of the Greek that simply says sober, as in the opposite of drunk. Now, I know that you have experienced a drunk person. Hopefully that's not your personal experience, but I'm sure you've witnessed someone in a drunken state. And here's the thing about drunk people. 
they all come in different shapes and sizes, right? No two drunks are alike. You have the angry drunk, you have the depressed drunk, you have the happy drunk, you have the quiet and somber drunk, right? There are variations of drunkenness. But interestingly, if you read the scriptures, you come to find that it puts a spotlight on two characters of drunkenness, two types of drunk, predominantly more than any other types of drunks. And to show you what they are, consider this sampling both from the book of Proverbs. The first is Proverbs 20, verse 1, where it describes this kind of drunk. It says, wine is a mocker, strong drink to a brawler, and whoever is intoxicated by it is not wise. And then Proverbs 23, verse, verse 29, who has woe, who has sorrow, who has contentions, who has complaining, who has wounds without cause, who has redness of eyes. Now, if you look carefully at the descriptions or the characterization of these two drunks, you come to find two characters emerging. First, you have the overconfident mocker. Then, you have the woe-is-me victim. These are the two predominant characters of drunks that Scripture spotlights more than any other. And it's this kind of drunken state, these two drunken states, that Peter is warning us to not become when he warns us to be sober-minded. And the question is, why? Why does Peter warn us to not fall into either of these drunken characterizations? Well, he already told us in verse 8. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. You know what's interesting? When people read that verse, they imagine Peter is saying something to the effect that be careful because Satan will cause some sort of supernatural physical altercation against you. You know, kind of like choking you in the middle of the night to where you're paralyzed and you can't move or, or might even demon possess you to where it requires an exorcism of some sort, like some Hollywood movie. No, that is not what Peter is saying at all. And the reason why I know this is because of what he says in the next verse, verse 9. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. If you have a pen or highlighter, you want to underline those two phrases that are in this verse. The first phrase is, same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood. And the second is, throughout the world. Because Peter is showing us through these two verses that the character of the overconfident mocker and the woe is me victim if you take on these characters, you will fall into the wrong narratives. Let me say that again. Peter is telling us that the character of the overconfident mocker, the woe is me victim, will cause you, if you take on those characters, to live out the wrong narrative. Let's begin by showing you this by considering the first kind of drunk, the overconfident mocker. Who is this person? Well, basically, this is the person who thinks that they can do anything and everything Right? Hence, they're overconfident. They're overconfident to the point that they will mock whatever suffering, whatever setback, whatever oppression that they have to face, and they'll think, it's okay. I can overcome it. I have the wherewithal. I have the strength. I have the ability to save myself. No matter what is against me, no matter how hard the obstacle, I will overcome because I can save myself from my own works. And yet Peter says, uh, not so fast. And he says that through this phase, phrase of this idea of sufferings happening throughout the world. That phrase throughout the world is not simply Peter's way of saying of how pervasive unjust suffering is. Rather, he's saying that Satan's demonic influence goes beyond the ability of just one individual. No, his influence goes higher above to the level of systems and institutions. Systematic influence. Institutional influence. 
Consider what New Testament scholar Karen Job says in her commentary on this verse on 1 Peter. She, she writes this, quote, Spiritual sobriety and alertness are necessary because the threat of destruction is real and the devil is a true adversary. Fierce animal imagery is also used in Daniel and Revelation to symbolize world systems deformed by powers of darkness and sin. Peter may be implying with the lion imagery that satanic powers are at work in the socio-political system of the Roman Empire under which his readers are suffering, end quote. What is she saying? She's saying Satan most certainly has the power and therefore he does pervert entire institutions and he causes systemic oppressions that go beyond any, individual ability, any individual's ability to overcome all on their own and to live in denial that these kind of systemic oppression and injustices exist or to think that you can overcome them if you just work hard enough and over and just rely on yourself and just make it you're just as foolish as the overconfident drunk and peter says don't fall into that narrative okay don't get devoured by satan by falling into that kind of false story because it isn't true now, let's consider the other drunk character that Peter highlights. And this is the woe is me victim. And who exactly is this person? Well, this is the person who sees themselves as the ultimate victim. This is the person who sees themselves as being the most oppressed, the most marginalized, the most targeted of injustice and unjust suffering. This is the person who just says, woe is me and I'm nothing but the victim. To which Peter says again, uh, not so fast. And he says that with this phrase, remember, the same kinds of sufferings that you're experiencing are happening to other people in different parts of the world as well. See, Peter is denying the ultimate victim mindset that overemphasizes systemic oppression to the point where someone feels they have no responsibility to change. People who think this way will be like, man, I don't need to change. It's the system that needs to change. It's those institutions that need to be reformed. I don't need to change. I don't need to be reformed. I'm the victim, you see. In his book, Liberating Black Theology, African-American theologian Anthony Bradley talks about how this ultimate victim mindset had pervaded in certain pockets of the black community that furthered the conflict between blacks and whites in the United States. Consider what he says here in his book, he says this, quote, Victimology perpetuates a separatist and elitist platform that provides no opportunity for racial reconciliation. Victimology is the adoption of victimhood as the core of one's identity. It is a subconscious, culturally inherited affirmation that life for blacks in America has been in the past and will be in the future a life of being victimized by the oppression of whites. The overall result is that the remnants of discrimination hold an obsessive, indignant fascination that only allows passing acknowledgement of any signs of progress. Many blacks infused with victimology wield self-righteous indignation in the service of exposing the inadequacy of the other white person rather than finding a way forward, end quote. What's he saying? He's saying that if you fall into this ultimate victim narrative, right, you're like the drunk of Proverbs 23, 29. You're constantly contentious. You're always complaining. And you're the sorrowful person who has quote-unquote wounds that what Peter says, or what Proverbs says, is without cause, without justification. Justification for what? To use your sufferings as a platform to elevate yourself as an elite, supreme person who is so entitled because no one has suffered as egregiously as you. 
Peter says, no, don't fall into that narrative because it is just as wrong as the overconfident mocker. mocker. This is what Peter is trying to say when he tells us to be sober-minded because if you allow yourself to get intoxicated by either of these narratives, then Satan has got you. He has devoured you. And if you think about it, this is so consistent to who Satan has always been. This is his M.O. I mean, go back to the initial temptation that he seduced our first parents to fall into sin with. Do you guys remember his response to Eve, to her initial resistance of disobeying God by not choosing to eat from the fruit that God commanded her not to eat with the fear of death? Do you remember how Satan pushed her over, what his response was? Listen to what he says in Genesis 3, starting in verse 4. You won't die. The serpent replied to the woman, God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it, and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. Here, embedded in this statement, are these two narratives that I'm talking about. First, he tells Eve that she's a victim. Don't you realize God is trying to oppress you? He's depriving you of the ability to know good and evil for yourself. But then he goes on to say that she should be confident in herself, in her ability to take care of herself without needing God. Because after all, you will be like God. You don't need him. You can save yourself by your own works, by your own knowledge of good and evil. See? Do you see how this is so attuned to how Satan has always operated, how he always tries to spread lies? And it's still happening today, folks. And when you realize this, you come to realize what the ultimate plot is in this narrative of existence. It's the demonic plot of changing the narrative to where you would see the ultimate conflict, not between Satan and Jesus, but between you and other people. The ultimate plot is the satanic attempt to change the narrative to where you would see the ultimate conflict to reality is not between Jesus and Satan, but between people and other people. And as a result, it produces nothing but disunity and division. Because think about it. If you think of yourself as the main character to the story of existence and someone else victimizes you, how are you going to view yourself? You're going to feel like the greatest victim who therefore is the most entitled. You're going to feel like no one can understand you. And as a result, you should be given so much because of that. Right? Or go the other way. Imagine for a moment you see yourself as the main character and nothing but systemic oppression comes upon you and you think, I can overcome this. I can do this. How are you viewing yourself? You're the Rocky Balboa. You're the William Wallace. You're the underdog who can overcome and come out as the champion, the person on top, and pat yourself on the back. In both of these instances, you're forgetting who God really is and it's causing you to look at other people the same exact way. Because what do these two narratives have in common? Is that they both look at the other person the same way. And which is what? The villain. The bad guy. To where we would see other people in such a way and describe them with phrases like career criminal, super predator, white devil. You see? This is what Satan is trying to do. This is his plot. He's trying to get the conflict away between him and Christ and make it all about people to other people. And the question is, why is he wanting to do this? What's his agenda there? Well, to explain, let me go to my final point, the ultimate decision this narrative calls us to make. Read again with me verse 11, where it says this, To him, Jesus, be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Here, Peter is referencing where one day, Jesus' full reign as the true king will be vast and it will be forever and ever. Now, here's the pop quiz. 
Do you guys know how ancient kings showed people how vast their dominion was? Do you know what they would do? They would literally take massive statues of themselves, statues that looked like them, that bore their image, right? And he would scatter them throughout their domain, right? And every time people would walk through this domain of the king, they would be reminded by these image bearers who the main character was, who was the center of it all, who was the guy in charge, right? Who all of this was about. It was about this king. And here's the thing. Whenever people would rebel against their king, you know what they would most often do? The first thing they would most often do? They would defame these statues. They would defame these image bearers. They would tear them down, desecrate them, chop them up, burn them, throw them in the water. Kind of like what they're doing right now with all these Confederate statues down in the Bible Belt down there. right? And every time people would do this, they're conveying something to the king. They're saying, we deny that you have dominion over us. We are delegitimizing your authority as king. We are delegitimizing your dominion as the king. And that is what Satan is trying to do. He's trying to get people to desecrate other people. Because who are people? People are image bearers of God, right? We are the living, walking statues of Christ. We represent him, right? And if Satan can get people to damage, to desecrate, to defame other people, to where you have one image bearer tearing down another image bearer, then Satan feels that's how he can convey to Christ that your dominion has no legitimacy. I delegitimize you as the true king, and I make myself the king. Here's the thing. People are made in the image of God. It doesn't matter who they are. It doesn't matter what they've done. Everyone bears the image, and that image will always be with them, whether they're Christian or not. This is why, by the way, quick tangent, in Genesis chapter 4, <clears throat> why God gave Cain his mark to protect him. Even though Cain was guilty of an atrocious crime, making him a criminal, he would not allow anyone to seek revenge to where they would essentially lynch Cain. Right? It doesn't matter if he was a criminal or not. He would not permit, God would not permit Cain to be killed. Why? For one reason and one reason alone. Because Cain still bore the image of God. Okay, tangent over. Going back to Satan. <clears throat> he thinks that he's able to get an image bearer of God to dishonor, to desecrate, destroy another image of God. That he could therefore successfully undermine the dominion of Christ. This is his ultimate goal. And folks, when we buy into that by falling into these narratives, this is where you have the problem. This is where you have nationalism, racism, socialism, capitalism, patriarchism, feminism, liberalism, conservatism, whatever ism that nauseates you. This is the source of it all because we have come under demonic influence. But here's where the gospel is such good news. Because what is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God did something that Satan had no idea he would do. Because as the wannabe king, that he is, he would never have done what the true king actually did for us in the gospel. Because what did the true king, Jesus, do for us in the gospel? I'll tell you what he did. Okay, Jesus, the ultimate king, became the ultimate servant for the sake of others. Jesus, the ultimate righteous one, allowed himself to be treated as the ultimate unrighteous one for the sake of others. Jesus, the true main character of the story of existence, allowed himself to become a no-name nobody living in a no-name town in an obscure part of the world that no one even knew existed for the sake of others. Jesus, the victorious one, became the ultimate victim 
for the sake of others. Jesus, the ultimate favored one, became the ultimate underdog where the entire system and the entire institutions were against him, conspiring against him. And yet he came out on top, all on his own, by his own work. He came out triumphant as the only true champion. Don't you see? The gospel undermines the satanic narratives that bring so much chaos, so much conflict, so much division, so much disunity. Because the main character of the story came into the world so that people like us, people who are nobodies, the no-name extras in the background of a movie scene, the no-name characters that just get a passing reference, he came and loved us so much so that we could be treated like as if we were the main character. Or as Peter says in verse 6, that we would be exalted. And when you understand that the main character loves us this much, it will sober us up to where we make him truly the main character to the story of our lives. And when we make him the main character of our story, as, we rightfully, as he rightfully should be, we stop seeing ourselves that way. And almost immediately we'll stop seeing other people as our villain because the conflict is ultimately not our conflict. It's the conflict between Jesus and Satan, our true enemy. And when we recognize that, we will stop seeing the other as the villain, but we will, also, we will rather see them as someone who bears the precious image of God and that we will seek to work to build reconciliation, to build peace, to bring glory to the one who overcame the greatest conflict of all through his amazing redeeming love on the cross. Christian, this is the narrative you must hold on to. This is the narrative that you filter all other narratives. Because when you do, this is where true peace, this is where true unity comes. It only comes through the narrative of the great gospel story, which is the true story of all. I pray that you will hold on to that and believe it. Amen. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would help us to understand this narrative that we are all characters in and that we would not be so foolish in characterizing ourselves in a way that we desire when in fact we're just playing into the desires of Satan, our great enemy. Father, help us to recognize that you truly are the center of it all. You are the main character so that we would not get intoxicated with false narratives that will leave us in such a way that we would cause nothing but disunity division, conflict, and chaos with our fellow image bearers. God, we pray that you will grant us peace and the church will lead the way in showing the way of peace, which is only through Jesus Christ, you, Lord. We ask that you would enable us to do that now and forevermore. For we pray in your holy name, amen and amen.